When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous and welcome to season three of the afternoon special podcast formerly known as the Hi, I'm Bobby podcast. If someone were to ask you what is a culture shifting year, what year comes to mind? Maybe it's 1985, perhaps 2007, 2019. Well, that year for me is 1999. Now you may be asking Bobby, you were what, one at that point? Like you're not remembering anything from 1999. And you are correct. I am not remembering anything from 1999. But in my ever evolving journey within pop culture and looking back at, you know, where trends started, where we got certain quotes from movies, all that jazz, I found that 1999 tends to pop up quite a bit. Within pop culture, there are rarely whole years where you can pinpoint a shift in the cultural landscape. It's usually specific moments within certain years that are remembered, however, 1999 is undoubtedly one of those rare years. The new millennium was knocking and that meant a year chock full of groundbreaking new filmmakers whose impact is still felt in Hollywood today. The concept of prestige TV was on the rise. I mean, it was the year SpongeBob SquarePants premiered after all. There was an incredibly varied musical scene that was both timeless and very much of the time. This was the year that we got the classic that is Nookie, which does contain the lines, I did it all for the Nookie, come on, the Nookie, come on, so you can take that cookie and stick it up your, yeah and just a pinch of end-of-the-world panic for good measure. 1999 was truly the embodiment of this global celebration for the end of the millennium, as well as the societal anxiety of what was to come. So, spike those frosted tips and turn on My Worst Enemy by Lit, because this week, we're taking a look back at the year 1999. We got a lot of ground to cover in this episode, so we're going to break things up by sectors in pop culture. Think of it as pop culture neighborhoods. So, TV in 1999, movies in 1999, music in 1999, and events of note. And you guessed it, 1999. And I promise you, I'm going to try and limit how much I say the year 1999, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to try my best. So we're going to start off on the smaller screen with TV. Now, at this point, television had fully come into its own as something that we just couldn't live without and had managed to transform the landscape of entertainment pretty quickly. We got the premieres of shows like The West Wing, The Sopranos, and the aforementioned SpongeBob SquarePants. Television was a completely different landscape than it is now, and it seemed like there was so much more consolidation of audiences around television. 
Variety was the name of the game for the 90s, and with that came a bit of a golden age for television during that time. And 99 served as the jumping off point for where television would be heading in the new millennium. For television, 1999 was almost the stepping stone. Writer Noelle Murphy wrote in a 2016 Uproxx article called Making a Case for the 90s, Television's Other Golden Age. Quote, The Sopranos wasn't the only era-defining show that debuted in 1999. It was also the year of The West Wing and Angel, and the year Jon Stewart took over for Craig Kilborn on The Daily Show. Fox debuted Malcolm in the Middle, getting a jump on the single-camera sitcom explosion, and ABC re-established unscripted programming in prime time with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Just as important that year were the shows that failed. NBC's wonderful Freaks and Geeks created and starring multiple future comedy stars. Fox's hard-edged show business satire called Action. CBS's ahead-of-its-time action fantasy oddity, Now and Again, and the WB's zingy teen comedy called Popular, created by soon-to-be TV impresario Ryan Murphy. And one of the most talked-about TV movies of 1999 was HBO's Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, co-written by a 29-year-old newcomer named Shonda Rhimes, end quote. So, needless to say, a pretty stacked year for TV. There were some standouts in that quote that I would like to kind of uh, expand upon as these, as kind of the, the pillars or the really like next class of TV pioneers, one of which being Jon Stewart and The Daily Show. And I think for a lot of people, what The Daily Show was in that immediate time and what it is after and what it is now, honestly, was a show that I think helped to kind of expand the political consciousness of an entire generation. I think there's a, a ton of people who will cite The Daily Show as being kind of where they got their political consciousness and they were became aware of their surroundings. And it really was dirt, like via the delivery system of John Oliver and, of course, all of the correspondents that went on to do all these incredible, amazing things beyond the show. I think for so much of what late night television was, you didn't really have something like The Daily Show fitting in that slot. I think late night television was definitely transformative in a lot of ways, but it didn't necessarily take a fully political approach. And Jon Stewart took that and was just like, okay, we can make this both informative and funny. And he's not a journalist. He wasn't citing to be a journalist covering anything with any type of like a journalistic mind or point of view. But you still felt like he was taking care and talking about things with a lot of care and detail. And I, it just shows in what our kind of current television political landscape is now. Of course, we have former correspondents from the show who have gone on to do their own things, like John Oliver with Last Week Tonight, which is an incredible show that I think expounds upon what The Daily Show was in 1999. You just have a, a ton of variety in late night television that at that time, you know, in the late 90s, wasn't quite what it is now. Like, be it, it's still very much kind of like a boys club, a white boys club at that. But now you're starting to see a lot more variety in how people talk about late night, what appears on late night programming, and who is is having shows and everything like that. I do think we can cite a lot of that too, to The Daily Show and Jon Stewart. Um, I want to talk about Malcolm in the Middle, which I think is often forgotten about when it comes to kind of the 
family sitcom, unconventional family, you know, not so much lovey-dovey, very much anti-Brady Bunch types. I feel like Malcolm in the Middle really isn't all that remembered. And it's not until someone kind of jogs your memory that you're just like, oh yeah, Malcolm in the Middle was like a really good show. And I think for for all of what it was, it was another like laying the groundwork type of show. Malcolm in the Middle was a show about this very unconventional, but also very debaucherous and kind of just like uncouth family that was in kind of middle America. And then you see in the early 2000s and even late 2000s, this big explosion in sitcoms of the of the same kind. I remember I was talking about um, in a, I think it was a video that I was talking about for WandaVision. And if you don't remember, they, in the first six episodes of the series, they were themed to different eras in television. And there was an episode that was a parody of Malcolm in the Middle. And in doing research for talking about that episode, I realized that Malcolm in the Middle really was this kind of like tree that so many different shows branched off of. And you got this shift from the idyllic family sitcom that maybe has like a couple rough edges, but for the most part, they're still pretty put together to this like incredibly not put together family that we saw in in Malcolm in the Middle. Obviously, it also gave us stars like Brian Cranston, who has like gone on to be this, you know, incredible drama actor. Obviously, Frankie Muniz dominated the early 2000s at this point. And so it was just a lot. It was a show that really was kind of this like impetus of the unconventional family sitcom that then gave us your your Bernie Max of the world your modern families like the middle shows like that I think they really did start with with Malcolm in the middle I want to go to Freaks and Geeks I know that I could not talk about 1999 without talking about Freaks and Geeks and I think it is one of those shows that really had such a profound impact on those who were old enough to be watching it and old enough to be able to take in and see what they were trying to do. And obviously, as the quote mentioned, it wasn't around for all that long. I think the impact of it is crazy for how short the show was. It didn't really survive for longer than I think like a season or two. But yeah, it just had all of this crazy talent like shoved into the show. Seth Rogen, Lena Cardellini, Busy Phillips, like all these stars that have gone on to kind of be like the the A-listers of now got their start on this show, this little show. And the show didn't have a ton of impact as far as being a show that got a ton of seasons, but it got it had a ton of impact as far as the stars of the era that is what it, that's what it is and i think freaks and geeks is also proof positive of just this general trend that was happening in the 90s not just in 99 which was this like almost bottomless well of talent that was able to go on and do things in larger classes i think sometimes with certain periods in time there's kind of like a select class of maybe like five to six like standout young stars that had the longevity to you know have long careers and do a bunch of different things and become household names but it feels like the 90s was really that breeding ground of so many people 
got their start on, you know, television. They got their start on, you know, in Broadway and smaller shows. They made the jump to TV or to film, music, like so many different people got their start around this time that still have that longevity today. The end of the quote kind of mentions this new class of, you know, showrunners. And I think this is really important too. This new breed of like talent wasn't also just like on screen. It also was off screen and behind the scenes in the writer's room running the show. So you have like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes who are now like established showrunners who, you know, got their big break in 1999. So really this was a stepping stone period of time that led us into the next not only into the new millennium of of television content, but also into the new generation of who would be making that content. I want to speak to prestige TV for a little bit, which is kind of a word that is often tossed around both with uh, happiness and vitriol. Um, I think a lot of people have varied opinions on it, which makes sense. Uh, it is a uh, it can sometimes be a dog whistle of sorts for like someone kind of cueing in on a show that they feel makes them feel superior. We, whether we like it or not, with art, we're always trying to find the thing that makes us a little bit better than everyone else. And I do think that that was kind of the birth of of that of that idea was around this time. So obviously, you have shows like The West Wing and The Sopranos, and I think what prestige tv really is it's just tv that is so dedicated to the story it is so character driven it is just has this timeless quality about it obviously the sopranos one of the greatest shows ever made and still holds up and i think that speaks to what prestige tv was at that time and then prestige tv turned into smart tv which is just like shows that make you think they're kind of one and the same Oftentimes shows that are prestige TV are smart, but sometimes a show can be prestige and not smart. And sometimes smart shows aren't prestige TV. It all just is a mixed bag. For me, if you were to ask me some like shows that you wouldn't think are prestige TV, but they are, I would absolutely put a show like SpongeBob in that in that category. I think oftentimes people kind of cast it out because it's it's animated, much like anything else. People relegate it to, oh, it's just for kids. But in going back and thinking about the the legacy of, of SpongeBob, I am I would be remiss if I didn't mention just how like incredibly smart and funny that show is, and it didn't have to be that way. Like it is a storyboard heavy or storyboard driven, I should say, show, meaning that the kind of forefront of production for the show is is the visual, is the animation. It's how the characters are going to move, is what facial expressions they're going to have. And the, the dialogue kind of comes at the, not at the end of the process, but it's secondary, which is uncommon for, you know, live action shows or films because, you're you're led by the dialogue you're led by by the narrative whereas with animation it tends to be the other way around and the visuals lead and then dialogue kind of comes after so for a show like that you could kind of have like these really great and funny visuals and just so-so dialogue but spongebob was a show that managed to have really great visuals in a lot of ways you know being made on like a tv budget you're not working with like the most incredible amazing you know 
animation all the time, but it still managed to just have these like really like visually engaging and funny scenes with the animation, but also with the dialogue. The script for some of those episodes are still just flat out hilarious and crazy and funny and so quotable. There are like whole episodes of Spongebob that I think I could quote just because of how much I saw them, how much they were played. And I think for my generation of of people, that legacy kind of lives on with with what we think Spongebob was. It was just incredibly quotable, funny show that just sometimes had moments where you're just like, I don't know where they came up with that, but it's hilarious and I love it. Spongebob is absolutely prestige TV to me. Uh, I go on record saying that. You can quote me on that. So we jump from the small screen to the silver screen with movies. 1999 was a massive year for film. So much so that there was an entire book written about the films that came out from that year that just so happened to also inspire this episode. It's called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen by Brian Rafferty. And I will say that I have interacted with this book kind of twofold. Number one, I read it in college. And by read it in college, I mean, I didn't read it. I was assigned. I was taking a, I think like history of film two class. And I will say I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was a bad student in film school, but I definitely took film classes with, you know, like your typical film school types, right? Like they only watch, you know, like old expressionist, German expressionism films from 1940 that were only shown in like a small village in, you know, wherever, or they only like watch prestige directors and they hate blockbusters and they hate anything commercial very much those types so obviously me I'm an animation girly I am I love a good blockbuster I kind of tend to stay in more commercial things even though there are a lot of like you know indie art house types of films that I really do enjoy I'm kind of a variety of life type of person if I'm drawn to the story if I'm drawn to the genre or the medium I'm willing to watch whether it's you know you know a commercial success or kind of an indie flop one of the two I'm I'm gonna enjoy it but I went to school with a lot of those types and so I felt really intimidated um for what I liked and you know it's not like I was necessarily a fan favorite amongst my professors either if you went and asked any of my professors that I had at that time um what was what was Bobby Miller like as a student I don't think that they would know who I am so that sums up my time taking film classes I still had an amazing time and I'm glad I did it and I'm glad I took those classes because I don't think I'd be doing what I am doing today but you know it is what it is but I was assigned a um, to write an essay basically about the impact of 1999 on film. And it was based off of that book. And so I, I did the assignment kind of just like, you know, I did it. I enjoyed it. I got a B on the paper, which is what it is. Um, but then years later, I think this was th- that happened in 2019. And so two years later, when I was in New York, all I did when I lived in New York was I would go to bookstores and just like immediately go to the pop culture section and see what books I can find. And lo and behold, I find best movie year ever, how 1999 blew up the big screen. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this book is right up my alley. Like, this is amazing. Unbeknownst to me that this was the book that inspired this paper that I wrote. And like, we had to read excerpts from the book to write the paper. And I just completely blanked on it. So I've been introduced to this book twice. And it is now one of my favorite books. (laughs) It's now one of my favorite books, but either way. The book is obviously fantastic and it does go into depth about a lot of the biggest films that came from this year. And when I say big, I don't necessarily mean big in terms of box office, though that is important. And a lot of the films mentioned in the book were box office successes, but I also mean big as far as impact too, which is what a lot of these films had a very big impact. For me, the films of 1999 can truly be boiled down to the idea of the old guard who was bound to tradition versus the new guard who was willing to accept the unconventional. In a 1999 Entertainment Weekly article written by Jeff Gordonier about the year before the new millennium being the year that changed movies, Run Lola Run director Tom Tickwer states, quote, Everybody knows that we're hitting the limits of traditional filmmaking because it's becoming so perfectionistic, end quote. This is the foundation for which many critics laid their arguments for the films of 1999 that came from what Patrick Goldstein called the, quote, new, new wave, who were changing the film landscape. By this point, film and its directors had begun to fall into a cycle of predictable narratives that didn't always deem it necessary to push the bounds of traditional filmmaking. Of course, this wasn't indicative of every single film that came out in the 90s, but the trend of complacency was evident. It seems that with what many thought would be, and in a lot of ways was, the impending doom of Y2K, all the rules of modern filmmaking had gone out the window. Movies like Being John Malkovich, The Matrix, Run Lola Run, The Blair Witch Project all challenged what audiences were used to narratively and stylistically speaking. There were a few factors that contributed to this, for lack of a better term, balls-to-the-wall energy that the up-and-coming 1999 class of filmmakers had, one of which was DVDs. As explained in a 2019 article from Independent, quote, the economics of DVDs were great for studios and meant that even if a movie didn't do great at the theater, it could still make up money after the fact. Fight Club, for example, was a huge disappointment on release, grossing $37 million against a production budget of $63 million at the box office, but became a huge sleeper hit on home video, end quote. Another contributing factor was the presence of more studios and lack of media conglomeration, so the opportunity to take on more films was at an all-time high. During this time, many critics began to delineate between the old guard and the new guard of American directors. The old guard of directors, like your Kubricks, your Lees, your Scorseses, were still making films that received acclaim, but critics began to point to the militant obedience to tradition and the deficiency of original ideas that came from these directors. Now, of course, this wasn't indicative of every old guard director, and even the directors that I mentioned, they were still turning out the hits. A quote from Gordonier says, quote, If Hollywood's old guard tends to kneel before the Ten Commandments of screenwriting, thou shalt insert a plot point on page 27, the new guard behaves with blissful sacrilege, even when it comes to the laws of physics, end quote. However, not every film from the New Guard films used fantastical worlds and groundbreaking visual effects to alter the cinema landscape, and not every Old Guard filmmaker was being left behind. 
And not because it's me. We're not going to look over this time in history with rose-colored glasses. I do have to bring up that this was a great time for many white, mostly male directors to experiment and achieve success in Hollywood with these new inventive techniques. This isn't to say that there were no directors from marginalized groups pushing the boundaries. There absolutely were. But I want to shed light on the fact and continued fact that many of these groundbreaking narratives that came from this year were mainly from white men, with the only real diversity being one or two white women, i.e. Sofia Coppola. And in those films, they cast abundantly white cast with maybe your very few marginalized groups being represented. And even then, they were very privy to stereotypes. And some of you may be thinking, well, that was almost 25 years ago. Hollywood is so much different now. Let's consider that the last few Oscars we've had have kind of been much the same. The mostly white men with a few white women and maybe a person of color is still the norm in Hollywood especially the norm for who achieves acclaim. So, one to chew on. <laughs> 1999 was not just a big year for film school darlings either, but we also got advancements in other genres and mediums as well. It was a great year for animation with the release of The Iron Giant and Toy Story 2, both phenomenal films. And arguably the genre that had a big moment was the teen comedy. In the late 90s, we were experiencing almost this teen comedy renaissance. And I use renaissance kind of poignantly because many of these films harken back to old, you know, literature standbys and classics in, you know, a 90s teen comedy wrapping. So we had films specifically from 1999, like She Is All That and 10 Things I Hate About You, but also in the, in the latter half of the 90s, we got films like Clueless and then Easing into 2000, we got films like Bring It On. I think a lot of these films and what the teen comedy meant around this time was truly just this like attention to this sometimes often forgotten about group when it comes to movies specifically about teenagers. I think this was, again, a showcase of a lot of the next up and coming stars of Hollywood who now have, you know, these long and you know storied careers now but they got their start around this time obviously we have you know your Heath Ledgers your Gabrielle Unions Freddie Prince Juniors you know all these people that were like teenagers early 20s at this point who were doing these what were considered to be kind of like b-list films who now have gone on and have become a-list stars themselves again a stepping stone a breeding ground for talent that was 1999, especially with films. Old Guard or New, Film School Darling or Blockbuster Hit, something was happening in Hollywood in 1999. And we can see the effects of that even in films today. If you have been listening for a while, you'll know that I have tried to, not try to, I have made some pretty like point comparisons between 1999 and 2022 as a year or years, I should say, that were trying to push the boundaries of where filmmaking can go. And I still hold up that that is that's what's happening now. It's not as, you know, we're obviously the year is not over yet, but we are still seeing this like attempt and effort to try and have some varied 
storytelling that's happening within the Hollywood landscape. So obviously you have your, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once is you have your nopes, you have, you know, all these different movies that have come out this year that have really made people go to the theater and walk out being like, I don't know what I saw, but I know that it was amazing. And I know that it was doing something that has changed me fundamentally, at least for me. Uh, Yeah, no, I can't speak for everybody else, but at least for me, I did walk out of those movies and have that moment of like, I just saw like movie history on, on screen. And I think that was a lot of what 1999 was. Like, I think a lot of those movies that we hold up as being, you know, classics now at that time were these kind of experimental exercises in in Hollywood that hadn't really happened all that much. And so you're putting a lot of trust in the audience to, you know, be on board for this unconventional showing in Hollywood. And I think audiences really were able to get on board with it. I think they liked and craved these new narratives, these new ways to tell these stories. And you still had this isn't to say that, you know, you didn't have your blockbuster hits because you absolutely do or your like franchise offerings because 1999 was also the year of Star Wars Episode One, Phantom Menace. And, you know, obviously in 2022, we've got many offerings from, you know, Marvel and the like. But I think it was a year, I think both years have been able to try and balance um, this kind of old guard and new guard idea, this, you know obedience to to tradition and filmmaking with also some like very unconventional and new ways of approaching things very fresh that's the word that I would use both years were very fresh for film and I think that we will be able to look back in a couple years from now and and maybe find even more years that kind of have that 1999 aspect next this leads us into the sound of 1999 with music Music is a bit of a monster to try and tackle because similar to television, the music of 1999 was insanely varied. You had the rise of bubblegum pop with Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, and NSYNC. We did it all for the nookie with the rise of new metal bands. We had the Latin explosion with artists like Ricky Martin, Mark Anthony, and Jennifer Lopez. It was just a party of a year for music. To lay the groundwork, I want to read you the top 10 singles on the Billboard Hot 100 for this year, just so you can get in the the mindset of like kind of where we're at musically. Number one, we had Believe by Cher. Number two, No Scrubs by TLC. Number three, Angel of Mine by Monica. Number four, Heartbreak Hotel with Whitney Houston featuring Faith Evans and Kelly Price. Number five, Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. Number six, Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer. Number seven, Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera. Number eight, Every Morning by Sugar Ray. Number nine, Nobody's Supposed to Be Here by Deborah Cox. And number 10, Living La Vida Loca by Ricky Martin. So like I said, an incredibly varied year <laughs> when it comes to music. And nothing but wall-to-wall bangers, if, if, if you had to ask me. In 1999, we got the show where all these songs and artists could converge with TRL, hosted by Carson Daly. And yes, the show technically premiered in 1998, but it was September of 1998. So 1999 was the full first year of the show. 
and it really came into its own as kind of being this like meeting spot where we all agree to look at the top 10 singles of of that week. And I will say, when looking back at TRL, it was mostly dominated by pop, but there was a lot of variation from week to week. There were plenty of weeks where you had bands like Korn at the top of the top 10 for that week. And so I think that was MTV trying to truly be what it was at that time, which was this this convergence of all of these genres of music that were able to be appreciated by, by an audience. And we don't really have a place like that anymore. And it's truly just because of how segmented the musical market is and how you don't really need to go the traditional route to get discovered like you did at that time or you have to go through a label and everything now you can kind of be a self-published musician and have this very niche cottage industry of an audience supporting you um and you can achieve success that way which is not a bad thing you know it's just like it's a different musical landscape but at this time Music was very much, you know, like you had these big hordes of people and you had these shows that mainly manifested in countdown shows where people were able to enjoy this like, you know, meeting place of of like people who shared similar thoughts with music. You could see your favorite artists. And I think also just the distance between you and that artist was a lot more prominent at this time. So like going on TRL and snagging a spot was a big deal because you'd be like, wow, like, you know, like there's no other situation where I'm going to see a Britney Spears this close. Like if I go to her concert, I'm going to be far away. Or if I pay for a meet and greet, it's going to be like a thousand dollars. So this is a big deal. Whereas now, you know, your favorite artist is really just at the, the, the touch of a button really via social media. So at this time, celebrity and the fan to artist interaction was a lot more formal and and distant. So like a show like TRL made it a lot more personable and made them a lot more relatable. And because we don't really have that type of show anymore, it kind of, you know, it it changes, I think. And I think MTV as a as a network is definitely fundamentally changed. And I think they're definitely trying to still create this, you know, meeting place of all of these different genres. But music and the industry it's just a lot different now than it was in in 99. But perhaps one of the biggest points about music in 1999 manifested in a music festival. Now, if you have heard me talk at any length about 99 as a year, you know where I'm going with this. That's right. We're talking about Woodstock 99. Now, that may sound familiar. You may be like, oh, Bobby, I know what Woodstock is. You know, peace, love, and rock and roll, right? Uh, not so much for Woodstock 99. I talked about this, I think, at some point last year when I was talking about kind of the whole Astro World tragedy and everything surrounding it. And uh, Woodstock 99 is kind of the perfect example of, like, what are all the bad things that can happen at a music festival? And how can they all happen in one weekend? And that is what Woodstock 99 was. If you don't know, this was the, I think, maybe third edition of of Woodstock as a festival. Of course, you had the original 1969 edition of, of the show. 
or of the festival, which again was very peace, love, rock and roll. You know, you had Jimi Hendrix setting his guitar on fire. It was this communal kitchen thing where, you know, you don't have to pay for anything. We're all cooking for each other. There's just like naked people all the way around. Probably so, so much drugs, so much drugs being done. But it was peaceful for the most part. And then they brought it back for 94, which was a little bit different. Not quite as, you know, peace, love, rock and roll as 69, but, you know, as raucous as 99 was. And it was just like your standard fair music festival. But then you get to 1999 and it is something completely different. Dare I say a behemoth of a musical festival that took place in like, I think it was Rome, New York. So to save us the time and energy of going through all the events of what happened that weekend, because it was a mess, for lack of a better term, I'm just going to give you, give you the highlights, give you the, the top notes of what took place. In a lot of ways, Woodstock 99 was given as this is Woodstock for this generation. But the problem is this generation was not the generation of 1969. So the issue was they brought in some of the most, for lack of a better term, raucous bands of of the time. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say there was peace and love in a lot of those acts. It was incredibly hyper-masculine. Some could say misogynistic air around the festival. Um, they had bands like, you know, like Limp Bizkit, Korn, and not to say that all of these bands were this way, but some of what the, the crowd that listened to this, these bands were, was very much that very hyper-masculine, misogynistic in a lot of ways. Obviously at this festival, there were a lot of assaults that happened, Um, there was a lot of just kind of like unregulated drug use, which is kind of standard fare for a musical festival, but people were just kind of taking whatever they could get their hands on. It was truly just a lawless space that ended in, in flames. It ended in fire on the last day in an effort to do a, a, a tribute to the events and victims of Columbine, which had happened maybe like a month or two before this, they gave concert goers fire they gave them like candles for a vigil and this was supposed to be happening during the red hot chili pepper set which red hot chili peppers were closing or they were closing the festival and by this time the concert goers were ruthless and hungry and probably heat exhausted and completely fed up Um, there was a big, I would say a big focus on kind of the, the greed and corporate greed of, of Woodstock. Uh, it was like $4 to get water. It was cheaper to get beer. So obviously people were going to go with the cheaper option and get beer. So there were people who were drunk, high and heat exhausted walking around this essentially lawless space. They had been put in this campground where like, There were no really, the showers were working, but not really well. The sewage system was dismal and you didn't know what was mud and what was, you know what. It was just a completely just 
debaucherous time. So by the third day of this festival, where these people have been raked across the combs for money and they don't have enough resources to sustain themselves normally, they're going to go crazy. And crazy they did go. Um, when given the, the candles for the vigil, they began to set anything that they could ablaze. And that was not great. And obviously the Red Hot Chili Peppers were like, yeah, this is a little red hot for us. So we're going to get off stage. And I think it was like one of the promoters for the concert told like Anthony Kiedis, like you have to go out there and like calm them down, tell them to not do this. And Anthony Kiedis was like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I could say to to get them to calm down. They're not going to listen to me. And so what did they do? They do go back out. And they decide to play Fire by Jimi Hendrix. And so that that's going to calm everything down for sure. So uh, good call, Red Hot Chili Peppers, on that. Really, <laughs> really good call. But I think the, the core of what the issue with, with Woodstock 99 is and what, when you think about it, where things went wrong is that Woodstock 69 was a lot of the music was like music with the message. That was the whole thing. And music always has a message, whether good, bad or indifferent. But in 69, there was obviously a lot of social unrest. This was a big time for civil rights. So a lot of this music was was talking about the the feelings of the era. And it was Woodstock 69 was kind of this like cathartic experience to a certain extent for for people. And there was just this kind of like you know, wanting to to stay socially conscious energy surrounding the festival. But when you get to 99, which is an incredibly different point in history where you have, you know, this generation who is like, you know, kind of angry, but not quite sure who they're angry at. This like very volatile meeting of these like young, white, angry teenagers, mostly male teenagers and you have music that kind of encourages being just angry, but you're not sure what you're angry at. A Woodstock 99 doesn't feel all that far off, you know? And this isn't to say that no one in this crowd had something to be angry at. Of course, things happen. But the music with the message thing was quite different from 1969 to 1999. And so that's where you get this kind of weird energy that was happening and this weird energy had basically endured for most of the latter half of the late 90s you had this group who was just angry but they didn't know what they were angry at and so they just decided to be i'm just going to be angry and so woodstock 99 happens but then like i said a couple of months before this you had an event like columbine which fundamentally changed a generation of people. And so this leads us into our last segment, our last neighborhood to visit in, in the 1999 pop culture sphere, which is the notable events of 1999. One of the most major being the school shooting that happened in Littleton, Colorado in 1999. We all are familiar with Columbine, but I think a lot of us are not familiar with the fact that it wasn't so much a a planned shooting as it was a failed bombing that was kind of in a lot of reports and a lot of research done surrounding the event the intention was to was to bomb columbine high school and the shooting was kind of a plan b from um the people who perpetuated the the incident 
But I'm less here to talk about the specific events of of Columbine and more so how and why Columbine functions in the way that it does and how it's how it functions now in our current landscape. So obviously, you know, if this is something that doesn't really, you know, if you're not vibing with this particular content, you're free to to skip to the end and the outro. I'll see you there. But if you're cool with it, I'm going to be talking about obviously something, you know, incredibly disturbing and, you know, a little bit hard to hear sometimes, especially when we're looking back. So content warning going forward. But a lot of what Columbine was, and I think we got it wrong in so many ways. And I think a lot of researchers and experts in the field, especially pop culture experts, have gone back and, and seen that a lot of what we thought Columbine was and the narrative surrounding it wasn't all that true. There was the whole like trench coat mafia narrative that ran rampant. And in, you know, many interviews, people who were in the trench coat mafia have said like we were just video game nerds and Dylan and Eric who were the shooters weren't really involved in our group all that much like we were kind of like school friends but they weren't like close friends of ours we wouldn't say that they were in the trench coat mafia there was a lot of you know and there's also been just like within the you know big boom and true crime there's also been a lot of people trying to absolve the shooters for what they did because it was like oh they were bullied and so this is how they retaliated so how could you how could you not be sympathetic that whole thing and so a lot of what we what we got wrong is so there's so many things but I would think it starts with the trench coat mafia and the problem with how that type of misinformation is spread is obviously you're asking when a tragic event happens you're asking these kids who are immediately have been traumatized, you know, what happened? What did you see? And so they're just going to say whatever it is that's on the top of their mind. They're not in the right framework to accurately give you all of what happened. They're themselves processing what happened. So one group of students would say this, and then one group of students would hear like, oh, okay, that's who did it when I do my news interview, I'm going to say this. And so that just kept going. And so the news cycle doesn't have time to stop and and really vet these things they're just trying to get the story out as quick as possible so then a ton of this misinformation spreads there was a lot of misinformation about who said what during the events of of the shooting which led to this kind of weird kind of martyrdom campaign that ran in kind of the early 2000s within the evangelical church it was kind of this whole campaign centered around one of the the victims who was asked about their religion and in that in the moment of facing the shooters who are asking them like where's your god now like do you still believe in god she said yes and that was the whole that was a massive campaign that ran within the evangelical church the problem is the person who did say it they were they were not the person who was thought to have said it who was a victim the person who actually had that exchange with the shooters which survived so again, misinformation, but because the narrative has gotten too far ahead of everyone and that story is so, you know, with your within that community, that's going to be a story of hope and a story of remaining, you know, in touch with your faith and everything. But by the time people figured out who had said what, you know, you're not going to want to go back and, and change that narrative. So I think Columbine was truly kind of this template of how, unfortunately, many school shootings have gone 
in the time since, which have been far too many since that time. It's this template of the news is going to get the story out pretty quickly, whether it's right or not. They just want to be first. There are many narratives that have been spun about victims. There are things that have been glossed over, like the shooters were incredibly racist and targeted one of the victims because they were black, which doesn't get talked about all that much. And then now, you know, towards the end of that, you have people who are trying to absolve and exonerate the 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 shooters and what they've done. And we see that sometimes within certain sectors of the true crime community. We've definitely seen cases where people have, you know, dedicated social media posts to to the shooters and have thought that they were in love with the shooters and, you know, have fantasized about them writing fanfic and everything. So it just this one event has kind of created this whole culture around how school shootings operate within the U.S. And they tend to be very formulaic. If you look at a lot of cases that follow Columbine, they follow it to a T pretty much. And we never quite learn anything different from these processes. Unfortunately, a lot of these shootings were because these shooters wanted to reach the same acclaim and stardom now you start them very loosely here as the shooters of Columbine, which again, completely messed up. Just a wrong thing to do. But this one event kind of spewed out this, this whole culture surrounding these tragic events that we keep finding ourselves in even now, even to this day. And so this is what I meant by like not looking back at this year fully with rose colored glasses. While we got a lot of great things in film and TV and music, we also have events like this that we're still feeling the effects of now. And those cycles are still happening almost 25 years later. And so shifting from that to kind of one of the big notable events from 1999 is obviously Y2K and the panic surrounding it. And clearly this is something that is not so withstanding now, but Y2K was just this kind of social and political unrest about what would happen when the clock struck 12 at midnight and would become January 1, 2000. A lot of people thought the stock markets would crash and, you know, this meant that everything would shut down, the computers would shut down, we would have nothing, everyone would be off the grid, it would be crazy. And in talking to my parents, because obviously I was one years old at this time, my mom and my dad were, were new parents, they had just had me. And my mom told me like, yeah, when Y2K happened, the only thing left at the store was Pop-Tarts. So that's, that's all I could grab was Pop-Tarts. <laughs> so yeah, I was, if Y2K did go down, my family would have survived on Pop-Tarts. So that's good to know. But this was something that was, everyone was kind of prepping for doomsday. And I do think that this doomsday mentality informed a lot of what happened in that year culturally too. Like I said, at the top of the episode, you know, this balls to the wall energy was almost this like, you know what, if we're going to go out, we're going to go out with a bang type of approach to a lot of these different points in, in media. You know, it was this kind of like, if this is it for me, if this is the last call for me, I'm going to do it big. And that is what that all kind of stemmed from the social and societal anxiety surrounding Y2K. Did it come to fruition? No, but every no, but no one knew that until after it happened. And really in the days following 
no one was going to know what was going to to manifest. And almost 25 years later, 1999 feels both a far gone time and like it just happened yesterday. I'll admit it's strange to look back on a time that doesn't feel that long ago, but its impact is still very present. We can draw a lot of comparisons to 1999 and 2022, even beyond pop culture, and we can perhaps take some lessons from that time and apply them to now. 1999 was a banner year, and we can draw a lot of what we love about pop culture back to the crazy events of this year. I leave you with a quote from a prophet known as Prince, who in the holy text of his 1982 song called 1999 said, they say 2000 party over, oops, out of time. So tonight, we're going to party like it's 1999. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you've made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this episode wherever you get your episodes if you had a good time. It helps out the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod and I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby, where I went semi-viral last week, I think. So, you know, I'm a good time on Twitter. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I need to do my own deep dive into 1999, and I also have the sudden urge to get frosted tips, I'm not going to remember all of that. I totally get it, and I'm with you. I would perhaps hold off on the frosted tips part, but before you go do that, you can find all that information in the description down below. As you can probably tell, I spend a considerable amount of hours researching for these episodes, and that means that I listen to a lot of music while I'm doing it, so I thought I'd share what this episode was powered by. This week's episode was powered by the 90s. It's just powered by the 90s, specifically My Own Worst Enemy by Lit, uh, Kiss Me by Sixpence, None the Richer, and unfortunately, a lot of Limp Biscuit. <laughs> I do really love Limp Biscuit. They are pretty good. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.